0: As we pick up at the end of chapter 11 this morning, we're continuing on, and today we'll finish a, a series that we've called Humble Brag. And what's going on in this letter is that Paul has some opposition. Paul, who planted this church in Corinth years earlier, Uh, and has pastored them both present and from a distance over the years. Um, Some new people have come in who are kind of demanding allegiance and authority, presenting impressive resumes, and trying to convince them that Paul's really not worth following, and they should really switch allegiance to them as well. And many of the things that they're presenting here uh, as grounds, as a resume, as as reasons why they are superior to Paul and should be trusted, um, they've presented these things, and now Paul is put in a place where he needs to respond. And so, if you read through chapters eleven and twelve, the word that comes up over and over again is boasting. Okay, that's how he labels their behavior. He says, "Look, they've come in and they've given you all of these reasons." And he says, and now effectively you're asking me to boast. And consistently and constantly he says, that's foolish. That's foolish to present all of these reasons why you follow me. But now he feels like he's put in a corner. And nobody puts Paul in a corner. Uh, And so he actually begins to boast. But as he does so, he turns it on its head. And so the things that he boasts in are the exact things that his opponents find shameful. And so he says, All right, you want to hear my credentials? And in doing so, he takes what we as Christians should find glorious, uh, what we should really elevate, and the things that we should point to in our lives. Um, and he presents just a completely different model. And that's why we've called it humble brag. I mean, in a sense, humble bragging is never good. It's actually just us watching or uh, laughing at the fact that, ironically, people are totally capable of stroking their own egos in self-deprecation, right? Uh, In acting like they're putting themselves down, but they're really putting themselves out there. That's not really what Paul does here. But if there was a way to brag in humility, Paul has mastered it. And so what we've seen is basically three sections in this series. First, he shows the falseness of our boasting in self. That anything we could present as our own credentials, anything we would hold up and say, this is what gives me value and worth. Anything that we would present as being um, our own spiritual resume that validates us for the service of the Lord or acceptance in these people. He just says that that's crazy. Uh, The second thing he does is he begins to boast in all of the things that he's suffered. All of the hard things he's gone in his life. Shipwrecks and beatings and being thrown in prison. Uh, all of these struggles, and what we discovered was when we boast in our suffering like Paul does, we demonstrate the value of God. That all of these things, even though Paul's list uh, is extensive, pales for Paul in comparison to the reward of having a relationship with Jesus. And as he finishes here, he turns to weakness. He boasts in his weakness, and the value of learning to elevate and present and even... um, put our weaknesses on our resume, if you will, uh, is that it shows that the strength of the Christian life, that the power in Christian ministry, um, that the goodness in our lives is God's. And so we're not afraid of our weaknesses because all they are are opportunities for demonstration of God's power. And so, as he finally turns and boasts again here, he boasts in his weakness. Let's read together, beginning in verse 30, and we're going to move all the way through to chapter 12, verse 10. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor Under King Atreus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. I must go on boasting. Though there's nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. God, wherever we're at with you this morning, this is a true, different way of viewing things, Lord even for those of you uh, and those of us who have walked with you, Lord, for a long time and have become acquainted with these truths and can nod along with Paul here and agree and say yes and amen, we still have a tendency to turn to our strengths instead of yours. We still have a tendency to feel disqualified because of particular weaknesses. There's still places in our life, Lord, where, uh, where we need to learn this lesson. So I ask God that through Paul's example, And by the power of your word this morning, you would teach us that your truth and who you are would penetrate to the depths of our heart. And we would learn, as Paul has, to boast in our weaknesses. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's important before we look at this, not just to think of how Paul sees these things, how it impacts his life, but how it impacts ours. So here's my question to you this morning. What is the biggest, if only, In your life? What is the one place that constantly comes to mind where you think if only this was different, then? If only I wasn't dealing with this situation, or if only this wasn't the family that I come from, or if only I had a little bit more money, or if only I wasn't constantly being dogged by this particular temptation, or if only I didn't have this particular physical ailment, if only the chronic pain would go away, where is the if only in your life? Okay. Because the truth is, we all have one. And sometimes we have an entire basket of if onlys. When we talk about weakness here, when we nod our heads along with this passage, when we recognize uh, the goodness of God in the midst of our own frailties, those are the things that we're talking about. Okay. Now, I want you to recognize this morning before we look at them uh, that ultimately you are fully and completely aware of those things, but for the most part, they're probably hidden from others. They're not things that you talk about all the time. And even when you do, how do you talk about them? Sometimes we use them as excuses. And we go, well, I would do that, but you know my situation, right? Sometimes we use them, uh, we use them internally and we bury them and we hide them and they're just embarrassing to us. Okay, and so we keep them at a distance. We try and keep a lid on them. Sometimes, as Matt talked about uh, in the first sermon from this series, sometimes we boast as if the opposite was the case, just to keep the dogs off the trail. Okay? And so we speak with confidence directly out of our place of insecurity. It's a cover-up operation. Okay. What Paul does here is mind-blowing. Remember the vulnerability of Paul's position first, personally, he is currently being attacked. Whatever's going to come out of this letter uh, could be more damage. He's already grieving the things the Corinthian church has said, the accusations the opponents have made, and he puts things on the list here that they don't know. He says, all right, you want to talk about skeletons in my closet? And he just starts to pull them out one by one, okay? He puts himself in a more vulnerable position. Second, it's not just his own vulnerability here, but the church itself. Here's a church that basically says, Paul, they've convinced us that maybe you don't have the credentials for this. And instead of presenting evidence to the contrary, he just leans in. What is going on here? It's a simple truth, guys. Either our way of dealing with the if-only's is right or Paul's is. Let's look at the passage. And so he begins here and he says just very clearly, almost like a section heading in verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. Hear that sentence grammatically. Sometimes we read the Bible and we read it so nonchalantly we don't actually hear how profound statements are. If I must boast, I'll boast in my weakness. That that's paradoxical at best, it might even be contradictory. Right? It sounds like a silly thing. But this is Paul's approach to life. And then notice what he does next in verse 31. He says, "The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying." What is that? It's an oath. "I solemnly swear," Paul says. He says, "Fine, you've brought me to boasting?" I'm going to present my evidence. And the first thing he does uh, here is he takes an oath. He swears and he says, God knows I'm telling the truth. Now, if a guy is defending his honor, if somebody is presenting their credentials for ministry and they swear, what are you expecting to be the next thing out of his mouth? His most profound and amazing accomplishment. Guys, I'm telling the truth. I have no reason to lie. I was really there. This really happened. I was the one who did this. And to be honest, if you were reading this letter for the first time this morning, there are a lot of things, if you're acquainted with the New Testament, that you could drop in that place. If Paul wants to drop a profound authority bomb and a demonstration of the fact that God is with Paul, the list is pretty long. As long as the list is in chapter 11 of the things Paul suffered, how about the things he accomplished? How many churches did Paul plant? How many miles did he travel? How many people received Jesus because of the words coming out of the mouth of the Apostle Paul? Think of the miraculous aspects of Paul's life. He's going to talk about a vision or a revelation here in just a minute. Uh, just a minute. And interestingly enough, once again, this is one that's only talked about here. He tells us it was 14 years ago when we put it on a calendar. We know nothing about Paul in 14 years ago, period. But when you read the book of Acts, visions and revelations are a part of Paul's life. That's how his Christianity starts, okay? I don't know what your story is this morning if you're a Christian, but it probably involved a conversation with a human being, maybe in a coffee shop, maybe in a living room, Uh, you know, maybe at a church service. With Paul, he was right in broad daylight as he's walking down the street and he meets the risen Jesus and Jesus strikes him blind, okay? It's a big deal. Whatever it means, it's a big deal. Even when Paul was ministering in Corinth and things got rough because Corinthians, uh, he, he has this vision. Jesus just appears to him. He says, stay put, Paul. I have you here for a reason. I have many people in this city. When he's on a boat... Uh, and he's out at sea, and they're in a monster storm, an angel shows up to Paul and says, hey, as long as everybody stays in the ship, everybody's going to be okay. Paul is really a character of biblical proportions. He's like an Abraham. He's like a Moses. He's like a Gideon. It's almost silly for us to think back from here, from our perspective on Paul's life, and put ourselves in the shoes of the Corinthians and go, I don't know if this guy's the real deal. And so here he raises his right hand, and he says, I promise before the blessed Savior and God the Father that I'm not telling a lie. And then what does he say? He says in verse 32, at Damascus, the governor under King Atreus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped at his hands. Why this story? Now, unlike many things on the list of Paul's life in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, this one we actually know. This one you can read about in the book of Acts. It's relatively early on in Paul's conversion. But he selects this one. Of all the things that have happened in his life, this is the one that he swears about. And there may be a cultural reason for this, okay? Remember that Corinth is a Roman colony. So is Philippi... Uh, and then, of course, Rome is Rome. So there are places where we see Paul ministering that are not just part of the Roman Empire, but certified little Romes, effectively. And Corinth is one of those. Okay. When centurions would go to war and they would siege a city, the highest honor you could earn, kind of like our, our Medal of Valor, right? The highest honor you could earn was the crown of the wall. The crown of the wall was a reward and literally it was a crown and the points on it looked like uh, siege towers and, and wall. I mean, it looked like you were wearing a castle on your head intentionally. And the crown of the wall was given to the soldier who was the first one over the wall of the city they were sieging. Okay? Now think about how dangerous that position is in the ancient world. Okay? You guys have seen the movies. How are they getting over the wall? They're throwing up ladders, right? And how is the city responding to those ladders? They're waiting until people climb to the top of them and then they're pushing them over. They're taking boiling pots of whatever and they're dropping them on top. And then think of this. Say you make it all the way up, What's, how do you get over a wall? You literally bend over, you throw your leg over. Okay, it's a really vulnerable thing. There's no reason why they can't just wait there with sword in hand and wait until you're most vulnerable and just stab you in the back, right? And so the Roman centurions, uh, the emperor, Rome as an empire, recognized how significant the courage required to be the first one over the wall, okay. to be the one who, against all of this, this being turned, other people have to make it over the wall. It's not the only one over the wall, but the first was a position that they rewarded with this crown of the wall. Okay. Paul doesn't earn that crown. Right. What he says here is early on in my ministry when the city was under siege when I was surrounded when people were coming for me because I would ticked off the local authorities in the middle of the night they found a basket big enough for an adult human being and they lowered me down in it by rope through a window in the wall. Okay. He may be intentionally playing with this choosing this particular event because there's nothing more shameful than running away for a Roman. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but if you look at Roman uh, uh, armor, okay, they always had a breastplate. But unlike medieval knights, there was never anything on their back. And what's always stated about this, what people believe, is because they didn't care for protecting cowards. If you're running, you deserve to die. And here's Paul, and he's, he's running away. There's really no other way to read this event except that Paul was afraid and on the run. Is there? I mean, could we really label this happening, hiding in a basket, sneaking out in the middle of the night, as anything but cowardice? I really don't think we can. Now, there are other aspects later in Paul's life. This is relatively early. This is, <laughs> this is week one of the Apostle Paul. If you're not familiar with the story... Uh, the way that he gets to Damascus is very different than the way that he leaves. Okay. In fact, if we were going to say, who does it remind us of as Paul's on his way to Damascus, it sounds like a guy that these opponents in Corinth would really appreciate. Here's, here's the scoop, okay? So when Paul enters into the story of the New Testament, he's not a Christian. He's a Jew, He's a Pharisee, he's one of the religious leaders, and he is zealously trying to stomp out this new sect called Christianity, which he sees as a cult. He sees the message of Jesus' as Messiah as a heresy. And so he's involved, in fact, he instigates a persecution of this new and early church in the book of Acts, and he's throwing people in prison. He's making sure they get beat for what they believe, and in some instances, like the life of Stephen, he's making sure they get the death penalty. And so what takes him to Damascus is he's so, so zealous for this. He has no dog in Damascus. That's not where he's from. That's not where he is. He comes where he's living in Jerusalem. He comes before the rest of the Sanhedrin and he says, give me the paperwork. Give me the authority. I'll go to the synagogues in Damascus and I'll, I'll continue the per- persecution there. Okay? And so when he's on the road to Damascus, he has a letter in hand from the religious authorities to put an end to Christianity in Damascus. And it says that while he was still breathing threats against the church, that's when he meets Jesus. Okay. But notice this. He's got all the badges of honor. He is a chosen representative for this mission. He's zealous and impressive. He has a resume in hand. This is exactly how the opponents came and presented themselves to the church in Corinth. As powerful, as respected, with a long list of credentials. Paul knows what that's like. He's been there. But that's not how he left Damascus. Okay, first off, that's not how he arrived in Damascus. When Jesus meets Paul, he strikes him blind. And he's finally led into Damascus by the hand because he can't see anything. Okay? But eventually, he meets a guy named Ananias. Ananias explains who Jesus is. Paul receives Jesus, the scales fall from his eyes, he can see again, and so Paul's Christian ministry starts there, just just changing from hating Christianity to being a convert, changing from being an opponent to Christianity to a proponent. It's instant. Right there in Damascus, he starts this ministry of preaching that Jesus is the Messiah, and it comes under opposition the same synagogue that he was going to support, freak out about it. And on top of that, Paul can't find a lot of support in the church because they're pretty sure this is a ruse. Oh, how convenient, Paul. You want to come to our secret Christian meetings. Oh, you're really a convert now. Okay, you know, we can see that paper sticking out of the back of your pocket. We were told you were coming. We know why you're here. So he had very little support except in his own converts, the people he led to the Lord. And it's these people who lower him out of a window. He goes in chest puffed up, uh, puffed up, full of zeal, vinegar, credentials, honor. And he leaves in cowardice out the back window in the middle of the night. That's what he wants to tell the Corinthian church here. Okay? Now, interestingly enough, that's the last we hear of Paul for a while. We know that he goes out the back door and he escapes out of where everything's heated Goes back to Tarsus, which is his hometown. And then he's just MIA for about three years. We're not told anything about him until Barnabas, who's seen a church get planted in Antioch, because of this is so ironic, but because of the persecution Paul started, all these people are forced out of Jerusalem. And as they're going, they're telling people about Jesus, and they get to the city of Antioch, and people become Christians. And Barnabas comes to check out what's going on and he says, you know what these people need? They need Paul. And so he goes to Tarsus to find Paul and bring him and makes him a teacher of this church that wouldn't exist if he hadn't been such an enemy of Christianity. And I mean, it's, it's totally a life changed. But here's the thing. The first thing we should understand at the very least is that this, call it an act of cowardice, doesn't disqualify Paul. At the very least, that's what this means, that when he runs away, and I'll be honest, if you look at the rest of his story, Paul grows in courage. He grows in confidence. A riot breaks out because of Paul's preaching in the city of Ephesus, and the entire amphitheater fills with an angry mob who just wants Christianity to die, okay? Because these silversmiths, Who's, who have been economically impacted by the fact that so many people are becoming Christians that nobody's buying their little uh, idols of Diana anymore. Um, so they start this angry mob, and it works just like they wanted it to. The whole city's in an uproar. Okay. Where do we find Paul then? We find him in the portalis of the amphitheater, straining against all of the people who love him because he wants to go out and address the crowd. So maybe that's the best way to read this, is that it's just an act of cowardice. And at the very least, we should see here that it's not disqualifying. But when Paul goes on here, he talks about more weakness. He doesn't just say, look, I was immature and now I've grown. He says, I boast in this weakness. And so he presents this, and then he says in chapter 12, verse 1, I must go on boasting. The idea here is one of two things. Either he's saying, I know this isn't going to be enough. Either he's saying, you forced me so I know I have more to do. Or he's saying, I'm not even finished yet. Imagine what it would be like to be someone who doesn't get it. You're really, maybe you really love the Apostle Paul. You know what he's done in your life, but you've now become embarrassed by him. And so this letter comes to defend his ministry, and you're like, all right, here we go. People are really going to know. How are you sitting under the hearing of this? Are you just shrinking in your seat, so embarrassed and just thinking, shut up, Paul. Please stop talking, Paul, right? He says, no, we got more to talk about. Notice what he says. He says, though there's nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Why? Why does he go on to visions and revelations? Probably because that's a preconceived category of boasting for his opponents. He says, okay, they've given a roster. Here are their greatest accomplishments. Here are my greatest sufferings. Here are their visions and revelations. All right, let's talk about mine. Okay. He's just moving through the category, kind of like how we organize modern resumes, and so they're in different sections. He moves into the section of visions and revelations. And if you don't read this carefully... It actually sounds like he's willing to play their game and he presents their strength. And as I've told you, if you read the New Testament, visions and revelations are a part of Paul's life. Listen, the Bible doesn't present the miraculous, visions and dreams, these types of things as being a daily happening in the Christian life. Sometimes we get that wrong because when we read the Bible, we're covering years and years of personal history or even church ministry history, and so it's this miracle and that miracle. Sometimes we, we miss out on the fact that big things like Jesus' ministry are happening and they're more intense than they usually are, okay? Uh, let's just say the exorcisms annually spiked in the ministry of Jesus, obviously, Okay? And so sometimes we read this and we go, okay, this this proves that my life isn't a real Christian life because these things are missing. Not necessarily so, but even with that said, Paul's got a long list of places where the miraculous has happened in his life. But when Paul presents this one, what's more important than what he says is how he goes about saying it, and in doing so, he once again turns the game on its head. Notice what he says in verse 2, I know a man in Christ Okay, first off, let me let you in on a secret. The man's name is Paul. Okay, how do we know that? Look at what he says in verse seven. So to keep me from be- being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of revelations, he's talking about himself, but he refuses to say, this happened to me. He keeps it as a, at a distance. He says, I know a man. Now, one of the reasons he clearly does so is because it increases the objectivity of what's being talked about. In fact, notice also what he doesn't say. He doesn't label the man an apostle or one of God's great insiders. He doesn't root what happens next in anything except for the fact that this is just a man in Christ or a woman in Christ, a person in Christ. It's as most generic as it can be. Can you imagine how these stories are told by his opponents? Just think of it. He's he's about to have this heavenly vision here. So, imagine the telling of one of Paul's opponents. I had been fasting for 25 days, and you know, I've accomplished all these things, and I was really seeking the Lord, and then suddenly, I found myself caught up, right? And so, Paul distances himself, and he says, it's just a person. And then, not only that, but Notice how he uses the language here. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, even that might be a jab. This is not the most recent vision or revelation, maybe not even the most significant in Paul's life. He labels it here 14 years ago for a reason. Maybe it's just because it's an old story. But I know a man 14 years ago who was caught up to the third heaven, whether in body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. He repeats that. I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Once again, then, if he's, if he's repeating that, and if he's answering questions we don't have today, they're probably relevant to his audience, okay? And so here's, here's the second line of his opponent's explanation of revelation. One of them says, I had this out-of-body experience. It was like my spirit left my body, and I descended into heaven itself And others are going, that's nothing. I've been there physically. And Paul says, I have no idea. Only God knows if it was in body or out of body. But notice how foolish it is to feel better about the fact that God took you on a trip to heaven. How is this a place for boasting? This is what Paul is getting at. None of them walked to heaven. None of them found the secret gate or climbed so high in their own devotions that they unlocked heavenly, heavenly realities. The word here for caught up means to be grabbed, to pulled up. It's something that happened to them, not something they did. And so by telling the story in this way, he's just drawing out the reality of these things. It's like, yeah, an amazing thing happened because God did something in your life. Now, we have to recognize how capable we are of feeling like better people because of the stuff that happens to us. We're not immune to this reality. One-upmanship has become, maybe it's always, maybe it's just a human thing, but it's definitely a modern American thing, right? When, when we get caught telling stories or reminiscing now, you, we very rarely say, oh, yeah, yeah. But that's really how the conversation moves. And it doesn't matter if it's the funniest thing that ever happened or the most dangerous thing that ever happened, right? We just climb the ladder. We're just, often we're just like Paul's opponents and we go, well, for me it was, right, we've got to watch out for that. I remember that my sister, who grew up in the same church I did, um, visited another church uh, that Was very oriented around big demonstrative worship services. And so one of the things that would happen is people would come forward and they would be slain in the spirit. You know, just by the touch of a person's hand, they would fall backwards. And I'd just been a Christian for a while and I had concerns about this practice. And I went to talk to my sister about it because for her it was definitive. It was this major point in her life. And as we had this conversation, she just began crying and she just said, I just. I felt like this was significant because it showed that I was important, that God cared about me. It was this place where, you know, this thing happened, and I said, look, you don't need any of that to know how God feels about you. Just look to the cross of Jesus. Look at what he paid to be in relationship with you. This is where you find your identity, whether it comes with, you know, whiz and bang and powerful demonstrations of the Spirit or not. But we're prone to these things. And here's here's the underside of boasting. Boasting is not just a sinful behavior we get in because we want people to know how great we are. It's what we think determines our greatness. It's our identity. And the mistake that Paul's opponents are making here is not just because they're arrogantly putting these things out there. It's because they are actually arrogant. They believe that these things are the foundation and the litmus test that shows that they're God's chosen. And so as Paul does this, He puts the same thing on the table, but in a way that nobody can take the credit for. And so he says, I don't know if it was in body or out of body. I don't know anything about it. And then notice what he says next. Verse four, and he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. How do you think the conversation goes next in these revelations? They're descriptive. Everything they saw, the majesty of heaven, all of these beautiful things. And Paul says, I can't tell you any of it. I've I've got an NDA with God, right? Non-disclosure agreement. I can't tell you anything. It wouldn't even be appropriate for me to try. But even here, you know, uh, people are boasting and he refuses to. Nonetheless, he says on verse 5, on behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weakness. And so he says, fine, I'll boast in this, I'll present it. But as he does so, he takes all the teeth out of anything to be proud of. This is just something that happened to Paul, and it was an amazing and incredible thing. Why? Because God is amazing and incredible. Okay. And so he continues here, and he says, uh, verse six: Though I should wish, if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. He says, I'm not making this up it'd be okay for me to say these things because they really did happen. But notice how he goes on. He says, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. He says, if you want to know who I really am, look at the life that I live and not the stories I tell about what happens behind closed doors. Not the things that you have no access to, not the list of my accomplishments that happened elsewhere with other people because guess what? There is always another side to the story. There are always pertinent and relevant details we leave off the table. Okay. And aren't we totally capable of telling stories that make us the hero when in actuality we were just a witness of something? Of course. And Paul says, if you want to know who I am, look at the life that I live. Look at my relationship with you. Listen to the words that are coming out of my mouth. Not when I talk about other things, but when I talk to you. He reduces things down. He shows here that um, that we overvalue the wrong things and then notice verse 7 so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited now that word there he uses twice for conceited it means to be highly exalted and the word high, highly there is the Greek uh, preposition hyper Okay, and so it's over-exalted would be a good way to read this phrase, and that's why the ESV translates it as conceited. You should think of a cake rising, okay? It looks bigger, doesn't mean it's stronger, it's just full of air, right? To keep me from overvaluing this experience, he says, of puffing out my chest and going, this is proof of how great of a person I am. He says this other thing happens. He calls it a thorn in the flesh. Now, interestingly enough, Paul doesn't tell us what it is, to such a degree that commentators have spilled gallons of ink arguing about what it must be. Some say, well, maybe he dealt with a particular uh, temptation. He just really struggled with, and that's why he says flesh here, he struggled with a desire he had that he knew he couldn't fulfill and follow Jesus. Others say, well, maybe it's actually the Corinthian church that is the thorn in the flesh. The thorn here is other people, and God allows these people into his life. Maybe it's persecution and suffering as a whole, right? He had a hard life. There were many hard parts of it. Many suggest, and I think this one has significant credence when you read the New Testament closely, that it's some sort of physical ailment. Okay, something that brought him chronic difficulty and pain in his own body. In fact, some suggest, after reading the letter to the Galatians, where he says, when I came to you, church in Galatia, I was so sickly that you were compassionate to me, and you would have taken out your own eyes and given to the me, given them to me if you could. So maybe there was some sort of eye disease. Maybe he had gone partially, uh, partially blind. We don't know. Okay. But we know it's pretty serious, because first he says it's a thorn in the flesh, and then what does he call it, second? He says, it was a messenger of Satan to harass me. Now harassment, as we all know, is one of those slippery words that can mean just, you know, they say mean stuff. Or it can mean severely more than that. Right? The word he actually uses here in the Greek is literally translated punch me in the face. Okay. He, he is talking here about uh, what, the, what the old King James likes to call a buffeting or a beating. So he looks at this thing, and he sees that it's not merely physical, whatever it is. It doesn't just uh, involve the physical realm, other people or his own body. It's also a spiritual realm issue, and he says in its origin, it's demonic, and it's tremendously destructive, okay? It's like he's going 10 rounds with the devil day after day after day. We also know it's significant because Paul makes it a regular item of prayer. Notice what he says in verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Now, don't read that three times there as if he was just ticking off boxes, okay? Three times is just a Hebrew expression that means constantly, okay? If uh, the point here is that when Paul says three times I pleaded, and that word means to beg, I pleaded with the Lord, it's constantly coming up. This is Paul's if only. He says, if this one thing, it wasn't in my life, life would be easier. If this one thing wasn't in my life, imagine how much more I could do for Jesus. If this one thing wasn't in my life, I would be so less prone to temptation. Because let's just recognize that. When we deal with uh, stressful situations or physical weaknesses, we're more, more prone to sinful behavior. Have you noticed? Why? Because we want to feel better. So we self-medicate in our idolatry and we say, these things will give me escape or these things will bring me satisfaction or my reputation here is so tarnished that I'm going to, you know, nurse it back to health over here. That's how these things work. And the same thing with ministry. Imagine if this really is something that affects Paul's physical ability to travel the globe. His physical ability to stand before people and communicate without having to stop for breath. Maybe this disease is just so visible on him that it's just kind of, ugh, I don't know. But whatever it is, he's constantly saying, God, I know you're capable of getting rid of this. I know you do miracles, just take this out of my life and then the skies are endless. Then the horizons are out there and we can do so much. I can go so much further. Now in praying for this, we need to recognize a distinction here. Paul is not presenting some sort of stoicism. Okay, the stoics believed that fate determines your life You have no choice in the matter. There's no escaping the will of the gods. So just suck it up and make no facial expressions. Just tolerate it. That's righteousness to the stoic. Okay. If you guys ever saw Fight Club, there's a little haiku in there that is a stoic haiku. Let's see if I can remember it. Flowers bloom and die. Wind brings butterflies or snow. A stone won't notice. Right? Circumstances change. Life moves all around you. You're a stone, you're a rock. That's stoicism. That's not what this is here. It's not suck it up and take it because God is God and you are not. Paul sees rightly that the things that we go through, we should bring to the Lord in prayer, that it's appropriate for us to ask for help, for deliverance. Remember that it's Paul himself that says that we should cast our cares upon the Lord because he cares for us. And so he does the same thing. He practices what he preaches. He experiences this thing. He sees it not only as hard, but as spiritual warfare. This is an attack from the enemy, and he begs God to take it away. Nothing about that is inappropriate. It's exactly what we should expect. What's surprising, though, is what happens next. Verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, and interestingly enough, the tense there is in the continuous present but he is saying to me. So he heard this once, and he hears it on repeat for the rest of his life up to the point he's writing this letter, but he is saying to me, my grace is sufficient for you. It's not that God couldn't deliver him. It's not that what was happening uh, wasn't spiritual warfare. It's that God's grace was sufficient. Enough. And then he goes on and he says, for my power is made perfect in weakness. This is one of the hardest things to understand as human beings is the complexity of how life plays out. Paul looks at this and he says it's physical. It's a thorn in my flesh. He looks at it and he says it's demonic. It's a messenger of Satan. And he looks at it again and it's God's will. Why? Why? First, because God's grace is sufficient. Sufficient means enough, right? Everything you need for life and godliness, sufficient. The tank is full. And then he says, my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, interestingly enough, that word there for made perfect, it's the one that Jesus uses when he's dying on a cross and he says, it's finished. Okay. My power is completed in weakness, now, there's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek irony in that. Effectively, God is saying, my power is enough that you don't have to bring anything to the table. It is an in and of itself sufficient. Okay? The first way you should hear this effectively is that God doesn't need you. And that's important to understand. Because if God doesn't need us and he uses us, He can be fully acquainted with our weaknesses, our inabilities, our lack of accomplishments, our lack of experience, and still not be worried. If God doesn't need us, then the things we do to serve him aren't measured in the scales that we often use, but by an all-knowing God who just says, just let me do the work. But there's another way we should read this when it says that my strength is made perfect in weakness. My strength is finished in weakness. In other words, it's weakness that presents the opportunity. Where does God work where there's need? Listen, what we're talking about here is in daily life of how we move forward as Christians, but it's rooted in the same reality that is salvation. Bible repeats on multiple occasions that God gives grace to the humble but resists the proud. And that's what Paul had to learn in his own salvation. He was marching to Damascus, title deed in hand, evidence that he was the man for the job, trusted for the job, so zealous, so righteous, committed to God, and in actuality he was destroying God's own church. Paul was a murderer in his own words, a blasphemer and God had mercy on him. And the truth is true for all of us. If we're going to enter into a relationship with God, the only way is as a sinner. The only way is as a need. What we bring to salvation is not a partial resume and God grades on a curve and says, it's fine, it's close enough, you're better than the other people. No, we come, as the Bible puts it, in tremendous debt without a cent to our name, and God says, I'll pay the bill. All we bring in salvation is need. And most of us as Christians, we understand that. That's why we sing the songs we sing, and we can sing with joy and confidence, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The problem is we get into living the Christian life and we shift into this other gear. It says, okay, now I need to prove myself. Now it's all up to me. This wasn't just a problem that the church in Corinth had. It was also a problem that the church in Galatia had. And Paul asked the Galatians this question. He said, foolish Galatians, having begun in the spirit, are you now perfected in the flesh? How did you become a Christian? Was it because you worked hard enough? Was it because you studied deep enough? Because you begged God hard enough for long enough? no. God just gave you life. He says, and now you're trying to live the Christian life from that same place of flesh, from that same place of work and accomplishment. If God saves us by grace, past tense, then daily he will continue to grow us by grace, work in us by grace, move through us by grace. And that changes the way we view the the worst things in our life, our greatest hindrances. Go back to those if-onlys. Do those really disqualify you from righteousness? Do they disqualify you from a more intimate relationship with Jesus? Do they disqualify you from being used by Jesus or building his kingdom or uh, being a good witness to the world? Our first glance always says, absolutely. If only these weren't here, things would be better. And Paul learns differently in this passage, and he wants us to learn it as well. That's not true. Sometimes God answers our prayers and takes things away. Sometimes he leaves them there and does something better. My power is made perfect in weakness. What if the best way for you to stay close to Jesus is for you to walk with a limp? Would you take it? What if the way that God can use you and it will be the most glorifying to him is just to empty you of all ability elsewise? That's what happened in Paul's life. Whatever it was, he's, if only here, presented the greatest obstacle, and God says, No, 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 no. This is an opportunity. This is a place where I can demonstrate my power and my presence. You want to know what the greatest obstacle to the Christian life is? The one thing that we should be saying, if only, and actually mean it, self-sufficiency. Paul sees this as being aware of his own weakness, not that he's weaker than his opponents. He just can actually see it. And they've built up this facade of strength and power and ability. And because of that, they're just pulling from their own resources. They're boasting in their $5 bank accounts, and God's going, Oh, if you would just ask me. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I have everything you need for life and godliness. Don't we see this in Jesus' ministry? Who are the first people who get it? The sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the poor. It's the ones who have nothing to present before God who go, Really? A free gift? You just want to save me? You'll take me just as I am and that's sufficient because of what you've done? Right? It's the religious leaders who have this, this facade, this outward appearance of righteousness who go, not me, man. I don't have any needs. Who does Jesus say is blessed in the Sermon on the Mount? The poor. Those who hunger and thirst. The persecuted. Why? Because they are aware of their own need. Even if you struggle with some embarrassing sin, a constant temptation in your life, and nobody knows, you should see that as the advantage it is. It's not a worse sin than self-righteousness. It's not a worse sin than pride, and in some ways it's a less dangerous one. Not because it's less serious, but because you're aware of it. And the self-righteous person like in Jesus' parable on prayer, can stand before God and say, God, thank you that I'm not like other people. I tick all the boxes. I fast. I give generously. And all they're really doing is saying, God, I don't need you. I've got it taken care of. Aren't you impressed with me? And who does Jesus say we should aspire to be? The tax collector who comes and he beats his breast before the Lord and can't even look in heaven because he's so ashamed and he says, God, be merciful to me. We are so convinced that the way that God is going to work is the way that this world is designed to work. And so we need talent, we need money, we need power, we need position. And if we don't have those things, then God is stuck. There's just no, you know, the market's too hot. The opposition's too strong. And Paul just presents this thorn in the flesh here and he says, No, if God works here, if God uses me, If God does it despite this reality, doesn't it glorify him all the more? Of course it does. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Do we really think that the best way we can shine that light is to stand up strongly and largely in front of it and cast a shadow? No, it's to bow down before it. It's lowliness that presents the reality of who God is. And so notice what he says here. This answer in prayer changes his life and he says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. Notice that. He doesn't just surrender himself to boasting and weakness because that's all there is. He's glad to do so. He gets it. It's not that his thorn in the flesh is joyful, but he can joy- be joyful about God's answer to his prayer. He says, all the more gladly I'll boast in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So that he may live in a constant state of dependence and because God is good and God is Savior, experience a constant reality of God's presence. When it says rest upon me there, that's the word for pitching a tent, okay? It's, it's a constant presence, set up camp in his life. I want to be really frank this morning. If your relationship with God is as such that it's occasional, then you aren't fully acquainted with your weaknesses. And so you only need God when things go poorly. When things get wrong, you suddenly become aware, oh, shoot, I need God's help with this. At your best day, you need God's help. The danger there is that you're unaware, and so Paul sees this for what it is, and then notice what he says in verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. None of those things are good things, right? Paul doesn't say, I'm content with little, or a little bit of peace, or a little bit of applause, or a little bit, you know... He says, I'm content even with these bad things weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. He, realize here that Paul's talking about perception. We are weak whether we feel it or not. The psalmist says that we are but dust. That's all we are. Ecclesiastes says we're merely a vapor. God looks at us, and the label he wants us to take on ourselves as a badge that we wear is sinner. There's no coming before God, day one of your life with a Christian, day 1001 as a Christian, and saying, here's my resume. Instead, we just present need. We just come before him and ask Every good thing God does in our life is not based on our goodness, but his. And so when the sheet gets pulled back and we remember that we can't do something, when we have that Elsa moment and we just shout out in vibrato, I can't, right? That's God's grace. That's the place where God goes, okay, now we can get to work. When you get caught in your own filth, And suddenly you're exposed for who you really are. That's God's grace. It's saying, hey, let's be realistic here because I love you where you are, not where you pretend to be. Martin Luther wrote a monk who was a friend of his once in a letter, and he said this. He said, don't ever become satisfied with your own righteousness because Jesus came for sinners and only sinners qualify. What God uses, I don't even want to say what God needs because God does not need us, but what God uses to accomplish his will is the willing, not the able. when I am weak, when I know my weakness, when I avail myself to God's spiritual resources instead of my own, when I cry out for help, when I am weak, then I am strong. That's why the psalmist says that God is a very present help in times of trouble. Is he more present than times of good? No, he's just significantly more aware of God's presence. And so the question comes again, When you want a closer walk with Jesus, when you want to do more for his kingdom, when you want to make a larger difference in the world, when you want your life to really count, will you take the limp that comes with it? Will you own up to your shortcomings and weakness? Will you identify your cowardice and say, that's not disqualifying? In some ways, it's a prerequisite. And then when we experience weakness, will you air it out? Will you present it before the world? Will you boast in it? Because when we are weak, he is strong. Let's pray. God, I have no doubt that even in this room, there are things that could rival the Apostle Paul for being a thorn in the flesh. Tremendous realities of weakness, pain, suffering, character flaws, opposition, bad childhoods, lack of status. And they exist right here, and foolishly, Lord, we see them as limitations. We want to believe with Paul this morning that your grace is sufficient for us, that we don't need Jesus and money or Jesus and tremendous speaking ability or Jesus and uh, just neutral territory without opposition or Jesus and complete and utter health. I ask God that you would help us to plumb the depths of what you make available to us with the depths of our weakness, shortcomings, difficulties. I pray that you would teach us as you taught Paul that your power is perfected in weakness, that you know everything about us, that all of it you've allowed into our life and that you can use us here and you can use us here and you can use us here. here. God, I want to say, with the accountability of my church, if it comes with a limp, so be it. I want to be more dependent upon you. Draw us to yourself. Put us in a position where you can use us. Demonstrate the mighty power of your grace and your strength, despite what little we are and what little we have. And I pray for anyone who's not a Christian here, Lord. I ask that you would help them to get the message that all they need to bring to the table to experience the salvation the Bible presents is the need. That they have to bear that label sinner because it's true, but they can take it on without fear because Jesus came to save sinners. Take the blinders off our perception, Lord. Help us to see who we really are. And then trust that the God who is infinite can bridge that gap. Thank you for this time together this morning. And as we worship you, I pray that you'd be glorified. We may not be able to win America's Got Talent with our voice, Lord, but you're glorified when our mouths are open, when we sing loudly and fervently. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.